Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. Did you know that there were so many Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' birth that came to fulfillment on the day he was born? And that one of them went back over 700 years before Jesus' birth. It was the prophecy we find in Isaiah that says that Emmanuel, God with us, will be born of a virgin. That was a big prophecy. That was a huge miracle. In my opinion, it's the biggest, most important miracle in the whole Bible. That's what we're going to talk about in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. And uh, so we're going to start on verse 1. I'm going to give you a little background here as we go as to why this even happened, how this prophecy came about in context of, of what prompted it. So we go back to uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, Isaiah. It says, Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So Ahaz is the king. At this point, Israel is divided into two parts. There's the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom called Judah. But both Israel and Judah have their own separate kings at this point. So Ahaz, Isaiah is telling us here, Ahaz is the king of Judah. The problem is that while Uzziah and Jotham were good kings and followed the Lord's commands. Ahaz was not. As a matter of fact, Ahaz was one of the worst and most evil kings in the Old Testament. Uh, he was married to, uh, uh, he, he had a bad marriage of a woman who wanted to lead him into the idols of her religion. And so he then took that to the whole nation. Uh, he uh, sacrificed to pagan deities, and he even sacrificed one of his own children through fire. So this king uh, was awful, terrible, and did not follow God's uh, leading uh, or his commands or his uh, commandments or, or the law. or anything. He was on his own. He was doing all the bad stuff. 
But this is who is currently the king of Judah here, Ahaz. <clears throat> so son of that king of Judah, that king Rezin of Aram, um, and king Pekah, Pekah, uh, son of Remaliah of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to war against it. So here we have the uh, an alliance of two kings. King Pekah, who is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel at this point, and his ally, King Rezin from Aram, you might have in your Bible, or Syria. <clears throat> so these two, so basically what happens is there's a civil war going on. Israel is warring against Judah. But Israel has brought on an ally to fight with them from Aram or, or Syria. It says, they went up to Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. So this is talking about there was a time when Israel came against Judah and could prevail, and Syria came against uh, Judah and could not prevail. But now they're teaming up together. So this is the first time they've teamed up together to come against Judah. And so so when it was reported to the house of David, which is Judah, saying, Aram is camped in Ephraim, Ephraim, his heart as well as the heart of his people shook like the trees and the forest shaking in the wind. So now they're coming up together to go against Judah. And that, that frightened them. But I think what frightened them even more was the fact that they knew that they were being disobedient to the Lord. Because what Ahaz did, the rest of the nation did. So as he sacrificed to idols, they sacrificed to idols. As he worshipped pagan gods and deities, they worshipped pagan gods and deities. As he brought in idols to worship and kneel down to, they brought in idols uh, to kneel down to and to worship. So they're afraid because these kingdoms are coming, these kings are coming against them in the Civil War. But I think even more so, the, the, the reason that they were so afraid was that how do they go to God? How do they go to Yahweh? How do they go to Jehovah? How do they go to the God of Moses and Abraham and ask for help against this enemy when they know they've been disobedient to them? It's, you know, what compunction does God have to help them when they're not on his team, as it were, or on his side, or being obedient in any way? They're being so disobedient. So, verse 3, Then Adonai said to Isaiah, Go out now and to Isaiah, the prophet. Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and, I'm going to say, your son, <laughs> uh, at the end of the aqueduct, <clears throat> aqueduct from the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And uh, this is, this is if you remember, this, I think this is the same that we saw when we were looking at the, uh, the, the Feast of the Lord. We saw that video of that stream, that spring that was coming down and collecting in that pool. I think this is the same pool. This is the same spring, and this is the same thing, the same place. So at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field, and say to him, say to the king, keep calm and be quiet. Do not fear nor be faint-hearted. And that is hard to do, isn't it? When you're scared to death, of whatever you're scared to death of, even though God says over and over and over again in this word, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, I am with you, I'll take care of you, it's really difficult to do what 
Isaiah is telling, and God through, through, God through Isaiah is telling Ahaz here, keep calm and be quiet. Do not fear nor be faint-hearted. Let's skip down to verse, let's skip up to verse 10. Let's skip down to verse 10. It says, Then Adonai spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask for a sign from Adonai your God from the depths of Sheol or the heights of heaven. So what God is saying to Ahaz here is, um, I'm going to prove to you that what I'm going to do. I'm going to prove to you that I'm going to do what I, I said I'm going to do. I said, keep calm and be quiet. I said, uh, you know, don't be afraid. And then he goes on to tell him in some other verses here that these people are not going to be victorious over you. And he says, because he knows that, you know, Ahaz has a hard time believing in the Lord and what the Lord says, God offers Ahaz to ask for any sign, any sign, any it, from the depths of hell to the seat of highest of heavens, ask anything, whatever, and I'll give you the sign that confirms that I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do for you. So give what what I mean, just think, what would you, if God said, ask me for a sign, can you think of what you might ask for? I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Was the northern kingdom beside the More so, even more so, yeah. And they were actually conquered first by uh, invading armies before Judah because they were even more they were they were even worse. Yeah, they set up their own their own temple like their own altar. Yeah, Israel was worse than Judah, as bad as Judah was. The question is, what would you ask if God said to you, "I'm going to do this for you and to prove it"? Ask me anything, and I will give you that sign. Like, what kind of sign? I mean, like, for me, I'd say, God, take away my arthritis and let me just be able to run again. You know, that would, that's, a, that's a selfish request, but, hey, God, if you're asking, I'll take it. <laughs> I mean, uh, sometimes I'll say, just facetiously, I'm saying, okay, God, all right, if I get to the stoplight that's green, that's a sign that you're going to want me to do this. A green light, go. <laughs> So you can ask silly things, just you can ask you can ask serious things. But what does what does Ahaz ask for? Verse twelve. But Ahaz said, "I won't ask. I wouldn't test Adonai." Oh, that sounds so religious. That sounds so. That sounds so good. <laughs> because we, Jesus later says, right when he's tempted in the wilderness. Don't test the Lord your God. So this sounds right. And this is the problem. Because Satan does and so many things that seem right. And that's how he gets people off in the weeds. Because you know you say, that sounds right. And then they're gone and they're off track. Because this sounds so good. But Ahaz is not a good man. He's not a follower of God. He doesn't obey God in anything else that he does. And so 
if we just read that, you say, that's that Ahaz. He, he really, he really. But this is also straight from the devil. Because why? Because God said, ask me. Ask me for a sign. And Ahaz refuses to do it. You don't want to test God unless God says, test me. But if God says, test me, test him. To not do so is disobedient. So by the very fact that Ahaz says, I won't ask, I wouldn't test Adonai, he is actually being disobedient still to what God said to do. There's other places in the Bible where God says, test me. One in particular is where God says, you know, give, give to me, give to my work in the world, give to, give to what I'm doing in the world, you know, give your tithe or whatever you're giving. And, and I, and, and he says, test me in this. So in other words, in the church that my daughter's going to, they're doing a three month test. And the pastor there has challenged all the people to give a tithe for three months. Give a tithe of your income for three months. That's the look. God says, test me in this. And what God says is, if, as you give to me this money, I'm going to give back to you in such a way that you'll never miss it. I'll give back to you in ways that make you not even care about it, and you can continue to give it. What the pastor is saying that it's just give your give a tithe sacrificially, give a tithe for three months, and at the end of three months, if you aren't better off, then stop giving it. But I guarantee you, because God promises, test me in this, as you give that money, you're not going to miss it. You're going to be better off than you were. So do it. So when God says, test me, test him. He invites you to test him in these areas. So he's asking Ahaz to test me, and Ahaz refuses. So this is not a good thing that Ahaz is doing here. So then this is where, so God says, okay, fine, then I'll come up with a sign myself. I will give you a sign. So verse 13, then he said, this is Isaiah. Isaiah said, here now, house of David, it is a small, is it a small thing for you to weary men? Like, you know, they were at that point, they were just wearying each other and wearying God. Well, you also weary God, therefore Adonai himself will give you a sign. This is what God's sign is. Behold, the virgin will conceive when she is giving birth to a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. So there it is. That's the sign that Isaiah said that God would give. And this clearly is talking about the Messiah. When the Messiah will come, he will be born of a virgin. A virgin will give birth to a son. That happened 734 years before Jesus was born. So 734 years before it happened, Isaiah said, it's going to happen, and this is going to be a sign for you. But what he was, what God was talking about was not a sign that he's going to deliver Judah from this invasion from Israel and Syria, but this is going, but this is going to be the sign that this is my son. This is Messiah. When the person who's born is born of a virgin, this is me. This is Emmanuel. This is the son. So, you know, we talk about 
like the Bible's full of miracles. And um, when we think about miracles in the Bible, most often we kind of concentrate on the New Testament because those are Jesus' miracles. And all the miracles that Jesus did, other, other people did miracles. Peter did miracles and Paul did miracles. But, but mostly it's Jesus' miracles. And so we're kind of drawn to those miracles. But the Old Testament has miracles too that are incredible miracles. I mean, when you think about the plagues when they were in Egypt, was those were a miracle. When you think about the parting of the sea as they uh, as they left Egypt, the parting of the Jordan River as they came into the Promised Land, um, the Battle of Jericho was a miracle that the walls fell down. Uh, David defeating Goliath is a miracle. Um, so the Old Testament is full of miracles that sometimes we don't really appreciate as much as maybe we should. Uh, But this one, to say that a virgin is going to give birth to a son. I mean, okay, so, you know, walls fall, seas and oceans are parted, someone wins a a battle, hand-to-hand combat. Those are all things that are Miracles, but, you know, things that somehow maybe could happen, but there's no way a virgin gives birth unless it's a miracle, like a capital M miracle, a big miracle, a, a, a major, significant, meaningful miracle. So this is what the virgin birth is all about. It's pro- it is... The biggest miracle in the Bible, bar none. The biggest miracle in the Bible, bar none. So let's talk for a few minutes today because it's so important. What happens today is Christmas has so many other things going for it, right? We have Mary and Joseph. We have the shepherds. We have the angels. We have the wise men. We have... Bethlehem and the manger and all of these things that make Christmas the wonderful thing that it is. But we kind of read over Mary was, Mary was a virgin, blah, 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 and go on. And don't really set aside an appreciation properly for how important that was. It is the most significant thing about if Jesus is not born of a virgin, then you have no Savior. That's basically what it comes down to. So let's talk about why that is. So what made the virgin birth important? Well, I get, you can be thinking about that because I want to hear from you if you have other things that you, that you think, but I came up with a couple of myself. And the first one is that just as we talked about there, the virgin birth is a sign. So if you're God and you want the world to know that a specific child that is going to come into the world is your son, and you want there to be no mistake about it, no misinformation, no disinformation, <laughs> put it in today in the world, no mistake, no mistaken identity, no, no misunderstanding, then you're going to then you're going to give if you want to give the world a sign like a big great giant neon sign pointing to this guy this is the guy then it has to be a pretty significant sign don't you think yeah so 
And when God is sitting there saying, well, what is the most unlikely thing that could possibly be that would be a sign to people that this is my son? Oh, of course, he can be born of a virgin. So one of the reasons that this is so important is because uh, it can't be, it cannot be ignored. It cannot be explained away. Um, it's like a it's like a cosmic sign that God says, ding, 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 this is the guy. And so one of the reasons that the virgin birth, birth is important is because it's a sign. Like, like uh, Isaiah said, God says, I'm going to give you a sign. He said, um, what's it say here? Uh, Hear me now, house of David, a small thing. It says, therefore, Adonai himself will give you a sign. So the first thing, the reason it's important to discuss is a sign. The second reason is because the virgin birth fulfilled the prophecy. So if you're going to have Isaiah, the prophet, give a prophecy that Emmanuel, God with us, is going to be born of a virgin, then that has to happen. It has to happen because the true prophets of the Old Testament, could they be right 90% of the time? Like say, okay, we're gonna grade, we're gonna grade the prophets on a on a curve. Like if you're right most of the time, then you're a prophet of God. If you're right 90, like what's the what's the acceptable minimum error for a prophet to really be a true prophet in the Old Testament? And and the answer to that is hundred percent. A hundred percent. You couldn't be off one little jot or you were not a true prophet of the Lord. So so the second reason is the reason the virgin birth is important is because it was the fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah gave seven hundred years before. So turn over to Matthew and we're going to see where this uh, prophecy actually comes to fruition. So Matthew 1, uh, verse, sorry, verse 18, Matthew 1, 18, it says, Now the birth of Yeshua, the Messiah, happened this way. When his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph, but before they came together as husband and wife, she was found to be pregnant through the Ruach HaKadosh. I'm using, by the way, my, um, uh, my uh, Jewish Bible. It was, uh, she was found to be pregnant through the Ruach HaKadosh, which is the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, made up his mind to dismiss her secretly. Poor Joseph. I've always felt bad for Joseph. He's engaged to this woman, and he has these things that they're going, you know, I'm sure he had certain expectations of what their life was going to be like. And then all of a sudden she says, Hey, Joe, I got some bad news. Well, it's good news, but you may not think it's good. <laughs> Actually, I don't know. The way, this, the way this is written, I don't know that Mary talked to him yet. I think somehow he found out or saw or noticed she was pregnant here where he's saying, you know, being a righteous man and not looking to disgrace her probably made it was my domestic secretly. Uh, maybe, because I think, you know, if she had talked to him about it, she would have told him 
about the angel and what was said and so on and so forth. Uh, as a matter of fact, David Jeremiah has a new uh, video out. We might see part of it here coming up uh, that talks about the nativity. And in his, uh, in his video, this is how he has it played out that uh, Mary, because they, you know, the women wore kind of loose sitting robes at that, in that day. And you could hide a pregnancy pretty well if you wanted to. And that what happened was like when she was out in the market shopping, uh, she kind of fainted and fell back and grabbed her belly. And then it was obvious that she was pregnant and the word got back to Joseph that she was. And so that might explain as part here why it, that the first, he was uh, had this plan because he maybe hadn't even talked to her directly yet at this point, perhaps. Anyway, so, something to think about. So <laughs> it says, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. Um, so um, one of the things that uh, is important about the virgin birth is that it's it was a sign of purity. Yes. And Bible uh, going to was not going to do anything impure. Yes. And so Joseph is concerned about climate purity. Yes. And that's that's the whole story. But the miracle is that she's she, she the virgin birth is pure. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's the next thing I'm going to talk about. As a matter of fact, uh, Jeff. So, so uh, it says then um, verse twenty, but. Uh, while he considered these things, behold, an angel of that night appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Ruach HaKodesh. So, see, this is, this is new news. This is new news to Joseph. This is why I think it's very possible that he hasn't even spoken to Mary yet about this, because she would have told him this, but he, he got it from an angel. So either if she had talked to him, he didn't believe her, which I guess is possible. Uh, but it's also possible that this was news to him. And so through the angels, it's verse 21, she will give birth to a son and she'll call his name Yeshua, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by Adonai through the prophet, who's in Isaiah, uh, saying, behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, and that is a, that's the prophecy we just read about 700 years before. And then Matthew adds, which means God with us. So that was not in the Isaiah part, but Matthew adds it here. And I think one of the reasons he adds it here is because to the people of that day that he was writing to, they had no problem seeing Jesus as a man. They had heard him preach. They had seen him do miracles. They, had been, they saw him on earth as a man. So they didn't have a problem that Jesus was a man. Their problem was that Jesus was God. And so Matthew here is just reestablishing the fact that Emmanuel means God with us. So what, what, what Matthew is saying here is this sign is that the person, the man who was born of a virgin, that is God. The two go together. If you have a virgin birth, you have God, Emmanuel, that you two are intertwined. And he wanted to make that point because they saw Jesus as man, but he's saying, no, he was God as man. And he was born of a virgin, so he was Emmanuel, so he was God. He puts the pieces together for him. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up from his sleep, he did as the angel of Adonai commanded him and took Mary as his wife, 
but he did not know her intimately until she had given birth to... Do you have a son there? Uh, yeah. What's well, so wrong? It's so wrong. Where it says uh, that she gave birth that until she had given birth to a son, that's not in the original Greek. You know what's in the original Greek? What's in the original Greek is gave birth to her son. Okay, it was her son, not Joseph's son. And it's important. It's important. That's an important thing. And why the translators of almost every Bible has not has left that out, I don't understand. But in the original Greek, it says until she gave birth to her son. Matthew wanted to know it was her son, not. Joseph's son, and he called his name Yeshua. Okay, now, we're going to get to the third part before we run out of time, because this is the most important thing of all, exactly what Jeff was saying about the purity. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So, the short version is this. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit that they were not supposed to eat, sin came into the world, and sin came into their lives, Okay. And that sin has been passed down from generation to generation through the Father. So sin entered into their lives. So sin entered into Adam's life. So when his seed passed on to Eve to, for her to become pregnant and have children, the seed also was sinful. And so their children who were born were born with sin. And ever since then, every generation, the father's sin has been passed down to their children. From that day of Adam and Eve to this day, everyone who is born is born a sinner. You know. But why do people say that when a baby dies, that they're going to go straight to hell? Well, they do, because... There's an accommodation that is, the belief is, and I agree with it, that before you have the ability to make your own choice yourself, you know, you haven't, you get to a certain age where you are old enough to make that decision. Before then, you're automatically into heaven. You go into heaven if you die. Even though you're born sinful, God makes accommodations for that. Yeah. So when talked about being a sinner, it isn't just the sin that you do in life. But it's you're born in sin. And so it was absolutely positively necessary that to be Messiah, to be our Savior, to give us salvation on the cross, Jesus had to be without sin. And the only, to be, the only way to be born without sin is to be born without a human father. That, that seed of sin is not passed down to Jesus because it wasn't from Joseph's seed that he was born. He was born without a human father. So Jesus was born without sin because he was born of a virgin. No, I'm confused. Okay. Why isn't it passed down to the mothers of Jesus? Well, because the, the, sin, the seed from the father goes into the mother. During the time of, yeah, but the mother said as well. She, yeah, well, because she's been born of a man. In other words, I, so, wait, a woman doesn't give birth without a man's involvement. So she had sin. When she sinned, sin went into her too. Sin went into Adam's life and Eve's life because they sinned. Yeah. No, it's passed down through the man. The man's seed is yeah, it's the man's seed. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so one thing is, it, it, women can't be blamed for one thing. There you go. You can't be blamed for that, women. It's the men. It's the men that pass down the 
the original sin. The original sin is passed from man to children. So. <laughs> well, also, uh, because the child is from God. Not... Right. So Jesus is born without sin because he's born without a human father. That seed of sin is not passed down to him. And that is, so that's why I say, without the virgin birth, you have nothing else. Because Jesus had to be without sin, and not just without sin of sin that he committed, but he had to be born without sin. The only way he could be born without sin is to be born of a virgin. If he's not without sin, he can't be your savior, he can't take your sins on the cross, he can't give you salvation, he can't be your sacrifice, he can't be your, he can be nothing. So as much as all these other Christian traditions are wonderful and good and beautiful and nice, if you don't have the virgin birth, they don't stand. Nothing about Jesus stands. Nothing is true about Jesus if he isn't born of a virgin. That's how important that is. Uh, J. Vernon McGee says it's the linchpin of everything. He says, uh, here's what J. Vernon McGee says. He says, Jesus can't be Emmanuel, God with us, unless he is virgin born. That's the only way. And notice, unless he is Emmanuel, he cannot be Jesus the Savior. The reason they call him Jesus the Savior is because he is God with us. He was called Jesus. He was never called Emmanuel. But you cannot call him Jesus unless he is Emmanuel, God with us. He must be Emmanuel to be Savior of the world. That's how important the virgin birth is. So in this day and age, we really don't do it justice. We need to appreciate it more because that is the big the big uh, miracle and the big prophecy. And that's why we have the prophecy candle, because Jesus can be proven from the Old Testament. The Old Testament shows he is uh, Messiah and God's son. Yeah, Braden. I'd like to just make one more comment. Please. The fact that this was the miracle, and it was the miracle. However, God gave many more accounting signs because we knew that they could put that. And say that that's what God did. So he had the star, he had the angel, yeah. he had all of that to further back. Further points of Jesus. You're right, you're right on about that. Because if that was the only thing, people could somehow dismiss it away. But he had all the other things that go with it. Okay, before we uh, have our prayer time, um, I'm going to share with you, I have some. Advent writing that I've done and uh, to kind of get our hearts towards Advent. Uh, so this is a little poem that I wrote and then we'll have our prayer time. And uh, it's, called, uh, it's called A Christmas Journey. So it feels like this. I was cut from the trunk of a cedar tree, some of the finest wood in the world. Plain, smooth, and prepared by the Romans in Bethlehem, I wondered what they would make out of me. I was left alone, though, not needed, not this time. Thrown into a discarded pile of wood, and I waited for the next time. I was forgotten, as other pieces were pulled out and used for things either grand or not. I hoped for hands that would use me, too, someday. I was feeling lost when a night fell that felt different, like no other I had known. I heard footsteps coming my way. I was waiting heard wood being tossed aside, then that grasped around me, a strong, solid grip. I was carried away to a stable nearby. I was placed at the bottom of a new manger, nailed together by a carpenter who was worried about his wife about to give birth. I knew he needed a clean place to lay the baby, something brand new. I was finished just in time, just as the baby was born. 
His mother laid him on top of me, nestled on my lap on top of the soft straw of that bed that ate his bed. I felt loved, my purpose not grand, but glorious. I was used for years by that family. They took me with them. When they left the stable and found a home, I fed their animals and watched the child. I was finished with my job eventually as they moved on to other things, other places, and once again I found myself among a pile of wood, this time taken to Jerusalem. I was waiting again. I was picked up one last time by unfamiliar hands that took me to a darker place and posted on my front a sign that said, This is the King of the Jews. I remember they nailed me to that cross. I was aware that this day would be like no other, and it reminded me of the night so many years before. The man below me, also nailed to the cross, looked so familiar. I looked closer. I knew him. There with him at his birth on a night like no other, and now at his death on a day like no other, I rejoiced quietly at his manger, and I proclaimed loudly at his cross, This is the King. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you, peace be with you. Shalom.